0: It is great to be here as always, and um, today talking about one of my favourite subjects, which is angels. Um, I was once talking to a friend of mine a few years ago, and uh, she said to me, am I allowed to believe in angels? And I said to her, well, yes, of course you are. Um, But then we got into a really interesting conversation about how she felt as though she had met an angel But when she tried to talk to somebody in church about the fact that she felt that she'd met an angel, she was shut down immediately, as though she was into something strange, something weird, um, and she shouldn't mention it at all. So a few years back, um, I did various lectures on angels. And um, for me, one of the really moving things were the number of people who came to me at the end of my lecture. Um, Unfortunately, that can't happen today because I've got to scoot off. Um, But who told me of their experiences of angels. So let's begin um, with the first point. Are you allowed to believe in angels? Yes, you are. And you are allowed to believe in angels because they are an important, one One might say, even essential part of the biblical tradition. And one of the questions that we need to ask is what we can understand about angels from the Bible and whether that can help us in our understanding of angels. And there are, I think, quite a lot of interesting things we can notice that will help us when we're reflecting on um, our experiences of angels. Um, The challenge, I think, is that one of the things that has happened um, over the years is as the church has spoken less and less about angels, there are other traditions that have spoken more and more about angels. And therefore, when you start talking about angels, you end up in quite an unbalanced situation where the church has nothing to say and those who practice um, various parts of New Age religion have a lot to say, and that changes the debate. So what I'm hoping to be able to do today is to be able to say to you, this is the Christian tradition about angels, this is why they're really important, and these are the things we need to bear in mind when we're thinking about them. So the first place we need to start, of course, um, is what do angels look like? Um, I invite you to pull an image into your mind, an image where you would be really clear that this is an angel that you're looking at. And in order to be helped, we can look through Christian art. You can look at stained glass windows, at lots of paintings, at um, various of the statues that exist even outside this door. Um, and they, all of them, have a certain look about them. And the first place, I think, to question to ask is actually, what does an angel look like? How can we tell what an angel looks like? Now, I'm going to guess that the vast majority of you who are now thinking of an angel um, are thinking of somebody with wings. I'm just looking around, is this correct? Um, What is absolutely fascinating is that one of the few things I cannot tell you is true from the biblical tradition. Um, That is one of the fascinating features um, of angels in the biblical tradition. There are other things that do mark them out. So in order to be able to get to what an angel looks like, we actually need to begin with a definition of what an angel is, because that then gets you into what an angel looks like. And the reason why you will be thinking of angels having wings Um, is partially because every single picture of an angel has them with wings. But secondly, there are um, depictions within the biblical text um, of beings that we often associate with angels. And I'm thinking here particularly of the cherubim and the seraphim. Um, Now I need to get really picky and pedantic. Um, So please excuse me, but it's quite an important point. Um, that the word angel in both Hebrew and Greek means a messenger. So the Hebrew word is malak and the Greek word is angelos, from which we get our word angel. And the thing that makes an angel an angel is that they bring a message. So they are messengers. They bring a message normally from God, though not exclusively, as we'll see in a moment, um, and they communicate that message to somebody. That's what defines an angel. Now this is where I get picky. Cherubim and Seraphim are not messengers. What they are, are the heavenly beings who are around the throne of God. And their job is not to bring a message. Their job is to worship God day and night eternally. And If you remember the biblical tradition, if you know your cherubim and your seraphim, what you will know about them is that cherubim have four wings and seraphim have six wings. And the cherubim exists to be able to hold up the throne of God on their wings. So the descriptions that you get, particularly in the book of Ezekiel, is of um, a creature... And the descriptions are slightly different depending on um, which book of the Bible you're reading. But a creature who is a cherubim is either a beast with a human face or a human body with a beast's face. So they are um, hybrid beings um, and they might have the face of an an eagle or of um, uh, um, of an oxen. They have different faces or they have different bodies. And a cherubim um, has either a human body and a beast's face, or as I say, a beast's body and a human face, with four wings. And they are the ones who hold up the throne of God um, on their wings. The seraphim are the ones who fly in front of the throne of God. If you remember um, Isaiah 6, if you know Isaiah 6, the angels fly, the seraphim fly before the throne of God, saying, Holy, holy, holy and they have six pairs of wings. Um, two, that with two they cover their faces, with two they cover their feet, and with two they fly. And the purpose therefore of the wings are both to cover themselves before God and then to enable them to fly before God. So that's where the wings come from with angels. But what's actually quite interesting about the tradition about angels is that there is nothing that is ever said about any of the messengers who come to earth with a message that says that by the time they get to earth they have wings. The one exception is a reference in Daniel 9. So Daniel 9 verse 21 says, Gabriel came in swift flight if he came with swift flight, you could argue, if you wish to, that he, um, how did he get there in swift flight unless he had wings? Um, But that's the only reference to an angel with wings. And the reason why this becomes quite significant is actually one of the biggest traditions that goes all the way through the biblical texts about angels is people aren't sure whether they are angels or not. Um, And that begins to tell you that actually the angels aren't very clearly angels. Um, It is very unlikely in the biblical tradition that the angels that we see depicted all around us actually looked like that um, when they appeared, so when Gabriel appeared to Mary. um, If Gabriel had had a whacking pair of wings, um, it would have been really obvious who he was. But the point about the angelic tradition is that it isn't always clear precisely who the person is. Um, And there are some interesting examples, which I will give to you now. Um, The first, of course, is the very, very famous Genesis 18 of the um, angels at the Oaks of Mamre. If you remember that story, Abraham is sitting um, at the Oaks of Mamre and three people arrive. And it is quite clear from the text that they are people, they're not identified particularly as angels, Um, and then as the story unfolds, you begin to suspect that they are angels, and then you begin to suspect even further that one of them might actually be God, but you're not quite sure. They might be or they might not be, and the story is about that kind of unclarity, then not being quite sure precisely who is who. And then, of course, you've got the really important verse, which I will refer to again in Hebrews 13, verse 2, which says, "Um, Always show hospitality to angels, because by doing so, some people have entertained angels unawares. So the idea that a stranger that might pass your um, way might actually be an angel which is back to my point about the wings. If the person rocked up with a vast pair of wings, you would be really clear that they were an angel and not just a stranger who had passed the way. So you begin to get this sense within the biblical tradition that actually the wings are an optional extra. Um, they are not necessarily um, kind of part of the essential part of the tradition. And there's another bit that I just want to draw your attention to about the lack of clarity you get in the Bible about the nature of angels. One of my favourite stories where angels turns up is 1 Kings 19. And 1 Kings 19 tells the story of Elijah. So Elijah has just fought the prophets of Baal and had them all, 400 prophets of Baal killed. And Jezebel, um, the queen who was married to Ahab, said, um, I am going to kill you too. So Elijah, bear in mind, I'm paraphrasing this, but Elijah, hairs off across the desert, absolutely terrified for his life. And we know, and this is really important when you're reading it in Hebrew, that Jezebel has sent Malach to kill Elijah. The Malach, if you remember, is the Hebrew word for angel, but it's also the word for messenger. So Jezebel has sent her Malach to kill Elijah. Elijah eventually falls down exhausted in the middle of the desert and falls fast asleep. And the way in which the Hebrew does this, you just can't do it in English. Um, The Hebrew says, and then Elijah was woken up by a Malach. And you're meant to go, oh, no, but it doesn't work in English because we don't translate it like that. Um, but actually, then it says he was woken up by a Malach of the Lord, not the Malach of Jezebel. And all of a sudden you go, Ah, oh, thank goodness, that's all right. Um, Crisis over. But that's where you really begin to get that sense of what an angel is like in the Bible. They are somebody who is sent to give a message. So as I'm back, just to loop back to make sure um, that you heard my point properly, technically, cherubim and seraphim and the other holy creatures are not, therefore, angels because they don't have a message to communicate to anybody. And we kind of loop them in the category because clearly they stand in the presence of God, but they're technically not angels, and that's why they have wings um, in the way that angels who come to earth don't quite have wings. Um, the other thing, just to bear in mind before we get on um, to other things that angels look like, um, is the reference to the heavenly host. And the heavenly hosts are really important in the biblical tradition as angels. And you'll know about them because um, come this time of year um, in December, we hear many accounts of the heavenly host. The shepherds are out on the field um, watching their sheep overnight, um, and the heavenly host arises What's really interesting is that there's a lot of slippage in the biblical tradition between the heavenly host and stars. And I don't know if you've ever noticed it, where you hear the reference to the heavenly host and you go, I'm not entirely sure what they're talking about there. Are they talking about a big group of angels or are they talking about stars? And one of the really interesting things is it's not clear. So let me just read you a verse from Deuteronomy 4, verse 19. When you look up to the heavens and see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the hosts of heaven do not be led astray and bow down to them and serve them. The idea there is you go out at night and you look up and you see the moon and you see the stars and you go, they are the hosts of heaven. And the assumption is from that period that when you saw the stars as the host of heaven, you would think that they were heavenly beings and you might just bow down and worship them. And you really mustn't do that because they're only angels. But you begin to see that there's an overlap then between stars and angels, that you could look up um, and see something twinkling in the heavens and think that what you're seeing is angels, and that I think is quite an important thing. So um, if, like me, your favorite Christmas film is It's a Wonderful Life, um, you'll relate to this because right at the start, when Clarence goes to talk to God, Clarence is a star. And you might have thought um, when you were watching it, um, I feel like I may be the only person who watches it on a regular basis, but um, when you watch it, you might go, what are they doing making Clarence into a star? what they're doing is pulling on an ancient and very important biblical tradition that stars and angels are overlapping, which gets me back to the next point I want to make about what angels look like, which is that while there is no great evidence that angels had wings, there is one thing that is true throughout most of it. Where angels are described, the thing that is very, very clear about them is that they had shining white garments. And so therefore, you can see that you don't have a very big leap to, to make between angels with shining white garments and looking up in the sky and seeing a twinkly thing, thinking that the angels are in front um, before God, um, before his throne. So therefore, clearly what you're seeing is through the sky into the heavenly realms, the shiny twinkly things are clearly angels. You see how you get there um, when you're understanding the world in that particular way. And so one of the really key things, therefore, to recognise is that the white garment tradition is really very important. So let's stop for a moment and reflect on the importance of white garments within the Bible. Um, One of the really significant things is whenever you get a description of God seated upon the throne, um, it always says that God has a garment that is shining white. And the reason why that is very important is that it was really difficult in the ancient world. They were not blessed with vanish and other useful washing implements. Um, So therefore, making a very, very white garment was a very difficult thing to do. If you were able to have a white garment, you were either enormously wealthy or it was signifying something significant about you. And the idea within the biblical tradition is that God was um, a being who was entirely encompassed in white garments. So therefore, sh- his presence shone. Those who were in the presence of God, therefore, were, um, God's um, shininess was contagious. So therefore, the, uh, the angels who stood in the presence of God also began to shine. And you find this tradition trickling down also into other texts. So there's a lovely tradition about Moses who goes up Mount Sinai to be able to talk with God. And as he goes up Mount Sinai, um, when he comes down again, his face is shining. So there is something about the shininess of God which is essential throughout the biblical tradition. Those who are close to God um, have um, his contagious shininess and catches um, with them. Angels, of course, are very close to God and therefore shine incredibly. Um, Those um, who stand in the presence of God find God's presence contagious and therefore um, they begin to shine as well. So what do angels look like? They may or may not have wings. The hint is probably not Um, They almost certainly um, look as though they have white garments. Um, The tradition is absolutely unclear about whether they have a gender. Um, There is nothing in the tradition that indicates that um, angels are either male or female. Um, They are simply angels. Um, They're not um, that kind of being. Um, And that's it in the biblical tradition about what an angel looks like. So you can begin to see why it is that people struggled enormously to work out whether somebody or something was an angel or not. How do you know? And the answer is that you know because they bring a message. And the really key thing about angels is that they always bring a message. So the identifying factor about an angel in the biblical tradition, let's lay aside um, from the modern tradition, but for now, looking at the biblical tradition, you know that something or somebody is an angel because they come bringing a message for you. And that, I think, is kind of just the very heart of the tradition. The interesting question is, um, how then do you begin to interpret that? So I'd like to spend a moment now just thinking about Luke's Gospel. Because Luke's gospel, I think, is fascinating when it comes to angels. If you know Luke's gospel, you will know that right at the start of Luke's gospel, um, you cannot turn around without bumping into an angel. Um, You've got Zechariah in the temple who encounters an angel. You've got Mary who meets Gabriel. Then you've got the shepherds with the whole host of heaven who we've established might be stars, might be angels, Um, but they're probably starry angels, so we don't need to distinguish between them. But there are angels after angels after angels. Until you get to the end of chapter 2, and then you have no more angels throughout the rest of Luke's gospel until you get to the very end with Jesus's resurrection. And then with Jesus's resurrection, two angels come back and sit sit in the empty tomb again. So if you're reading Luke and you're interested in the subject of angels, your question is, where have the angels gone? Um, Why were they there at the beginning? Why are they there at the end and not there in the middle? What's happened to them? The answer is given, I think, really clearly and very importantly in Luke's gospel because after the birth of Jesus, um, we then have the next big moment that happens in Jesus's life, which is that Mary and Joseph take Jesus to the temple um, in order to be dedicated to God. And then he meets two people, Simeon and Anna. And both Simeon and Anna immediately recognize Jesus to be Jesus. They recognize who he is. And uh, one of my favorite moments um, about the story that we have um, of Jesus going to the temple is that um, Simeon um, sees Jesus. And this is a tiny baby who has currently done nothing, as far as we know. He's been born, he's cried, he's fed, he's pooed, otherwise not nothing, um, because he is a baby. And Simeon says... Not what we often hear him say, but what he actually says is, my eyes have seen salvation. Not my eyes have seen the Savior, but my eyes have seen salvation. So what he does in recognizing Jesus is he looks at Jesus and he says, I know who this is. I know the importance of Jesus. I know the world is now completely different because I have encountered salvation in this baby. And what I'm hoping that you're beginning to notice, therefore, is that what Luke immediately does is he takes away angels, as we might define them, and he puts in two new ones, Simeon and Anna, people who are human beings going about their daily business but who are able to see and recognize. And what's really important about both Simeon and Anna is they then go and tell lots of other people about what they've seen. Simeon declares that he he's, has encountered salvation. Anna goes and talks to everybody um, about um, the fact that the redemption has happened. So therefore, Simeon and Anna become the next angels in Luke's account. And the reason why I think this is really important for understanding Luke is that then you're set up throughout Luke's gospel to look for angels where you find them. They are the people who understand who Jesus is and go and tell other people about it. They are become the messengers. So is that defining an angel as a messenger suddenly begins to shift and change things for us because we recognise that the key thing about an angel is that an angel is somebody who communicates a message. Once you understand the nature of the message, then you start looking for Luke's angels elsewhere. Until finally um, we get the resurrection back again at the end and you have two angels who appear because frankly what the message was was so mind-blowing that people needed a little bit of help to understand it. Um, So you have angels who help with the message but there are human beings who are messengers as well. And I think that's a really important thing to bear in mind when you're thinking about the nature of angels, um, which I will come on to um, towards the end of my talk. But next, I just want to talk about two other things, um, which I'm um, asked, well, no, I tell a lie, three other things um, that I'm asked about on a regular basis. The first is named angels. And one of the things that's interesting in the Bible is that there are a few angels who are named. Um, Most of them are unnamed. Most of them we do not know anything about um, other than that they may or may not be an angel. The person's not quite clear or not. Um, But there are um, two who are named in the biblical tradition. um, Michael and Gabriel. Those are the two whose names um, we have very clearly in the biblical tradition. And what's quite interesting is outside of the canonical text, um, um, there is another, um, in the book of Tobit, there is another named angel who is called Raphael. And then outside of the non-canonical books, um, we have another one um, who appears in later Jewish literature, who is known as Uriel. And the really important thing to recognise about those is how they are all end. So I will say them in Hebrew, so you can hear it better. Micha, L, Gabriel, L, Raphael, and Uri, L. You hear it now because you don't hear it quite so much when you say it um, English-wise. The really important thing about an angel is they all have the name of God in their name. Um, L is God. So therefore, you know that they are an angel such as has been sent by God because the name of the Lord is in them. And this is why we get into the really interesting thing I've been talking so far about how it's hard to tell whether an angel is an angel or a human being. The other bit in the Bible which is hard to tell is whether it's an angel or God. Um, And on a number of occasions, you have, um, I'll use the example this time of the burning bush um, and Moses encountering God. And what happens, interestingly, in the burning bush, it begins by saying, and an angel called to Moses. And then a few sentences later, it says, and God said. And you go, hang on a minute, are we talking about an angel or are we talking about God? And the answer of the biblical writers would have been, yes, we are. Um, The really significant thing is that when an angel speaks, if an angel is speaking the words of God, then they are God. They are speaking God's words. There's no distinction to be made between angels and God. So you get this kind of really interesting tradition that angels are not easily distinguishable from human beings they're also not easily distinguishable from God. They are the ultimate mediator figures um, who stand between God and humanity, and you can't always tell who they are. And in a way, that's part of the tradition, that the tradition is that you cannot really see and understand the nature of angels because they are ephemeral, um, they are hard to identify, um, they are slippery characters, um, and that's the point of them. Um, So names, I think, is interesting. The next thing to notice, um, and I'm asked this on a regular basis, is um, guardian angels. Um, Is there a tradition about guardian angels? Um, And you may be surprised when I say to you, yes, there is. And it's very, very interesting to trace it in the biblical narrative. Um, there are just tiny, tiny hints. They're not, it's not big, it's not a grown tradition, but there are little hints which I think are fascinating. So you've got um, a reference in Daniel to uh, Michael Michael, um, who is the protector of the people of Israel. It seems as though Michael's particular job is to look after Israel. So therefore the implication is that there are other people's job, other angels' job, to look after other groups of people. So Michael seems to be um, the protector of a group of people. Um, You've got um, references like Psalm 91, that God will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all his ways. The implication is that there are angels whose job it is to look after people, to guard them, to take care of them. And then the one that I think is most fascinating actually comes from the New Testament, not the Old Testament. In Matthew 18... Take care that you do not despise one of these little ones. Um, just for clarity, little ones doesn't mean children in Ma- Ma- Matthew's gospel. It means um, people who are God's children. So they're not necessarily young. They are the children, they defined as the children of God. But take care that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you, in heaven their angels continually see the face of my father. So the idea is that the, 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 the little ones have angels who intercede before God day and night. Um, and that is beginning to sound quite significantly like a guardian angel tradition. So as I say, you, I cannot tell you that there are guardian angels um, in the Bible, but it's very clear to me that there is the start of a tradition that eventually becomes the guardian angel tradition, if that makes sense. So it's not there in its full form. It's there in its partial form in the Bible. So we've done named angels, we've done guardian angels, and we cannot leave off um, this subject without a discussion about fallen angels, um, because they are, of course, another category which are quite important within the biblical tradition. Um, And one of the really interesting things about fallen angels is you just find them um, occasionally, um, and the references to them become very much more important outside of the Bible. Um, and in the particular literature that I have studied, uh, my own research specialism um, is Jewish mysticism and its understanding of um, encounters with God, including angels, um, outside of the biblical tradition. Um, it's absolutely fascinating, and I won't bore you with it today, um, but it is a really, really interesting tradition but you have again little hints in the biblical tradition that then grow up into a much bigger tradition later on. So you have a reference in Genesis 6 um, to um, angels who desire um, women and they um, come down and have sex with the women and as a result there are the Nephilim who are the giants who walk around earth. Um, you've also got a reference in Isaiah 14, um, which is the reference which talks about somebody who tries to um, invade the throne of heaven and is thrown out. And the Latin translation of um, that gets you the tradition about Lucifer. So Lucifer is, um, comes from the Isaiah 14 tradition. Um, and then you've got hints about it in um, Revelation 12 as well. But what is fascinating about um, the fallen angel tradition is that what it does is it tells you a lot more about angels than it does about fallen angels. Because the idea is that angels are those who have two jobs, if we're going to allow the cherubim and seraphim to be in the angel category, which I suggest we do for the sake of argument. One of them is to worship God day and night Their purpose is simply to sit before, stand, fly before the throne of God, and worship eternally. The second is that when needed, they're sent to earth with messages from the throne of God. That's the purpose of an angel. Um, An angel that decides they quite fancy sitting on God's throne is misunderstanding the purpose of an angel. An angel that decides that actually they would like to have their own authority and do what it is that they would like to do is misunderstanding the purpose of an angel. An angel who decides that they fancy some human beings and fancy coming down to have a a chat with them, shall we call it, um, um, are also misunderstanding the purpose of angels. So the idea is that a fallen angel tells you what a real angel is meant to do. Worship God, bring God's messages to earth. And so, therefore, what you get within the biblical tradition is this, I think, absolutely fascinating um, idea that there are beings and the beings are there to worship God and to bring messages. They look superficially like human beings, so you're not entirely sure whether they are, in fact, um, human or not, Um, but their job um, is just twofold, nothing more than that. And one of the really important things, I think, within this tradition is to recognize that one of the things that we get wrong about angels, most often, when I say we, I mean through Christian history for 2,000 years and more, we get them wrong, is that the first thing we do is we make them into God. Um, and when that's when you, the fallen angel tradition becomes really, really significant. Um, that actually we need to recognize that God is God and the angels worship before God. When you give them too much authority, too much influence, then actually you begin to get the tradition wrong. And if it makes you feel ever bit, uh, uh, at all better, it was ever thus. And one of the really interesting strands that runs through both the biblical text and the extra biblical texts is that people were always trying to worship angels and were being told that they needed to stop. You should not worship angels is one of the strands that runs all the way through um, the biblical tradition and extra biblical tradition. In fact, let me tell you one from an extra biblical tradition that you probably don't know. This comes from a book called 3 Enoch, um, which was written around the 5th century AD. And um, in um, 3, well, slightly later, depending on your, your view, but let, we'll call it the 5th century um, and um, what in 3 Enoch, um, the character Enoch ascends up into the, heavenly hev- into the heavenlies. And one of the key elements about these kind of stories um, is that you have the um, characters from earth who ascend into heaven. They go to the first heaven and then they ascend to the second heaven and then they ascend to the third heaven. So Enoch's been ascending for a long time till he gets to the seventh heaven and he sees the throne of God and there is some being sitting on the throne of God. So Enoch does what anybody ought to do when they see the throne of God and somebody sitting on the throne of God, he falls down and worships. Poor Enoch didn't know that actually the person sitting on the throne of God was Metatron and not God. And when he fell down and worshipped, what he was doing was committing the greatest blasphemy possible, so he was punished and thrown out of heaven. Um, I must say, I always felt a little bit sorry for Enoch. You wanted to say, how was he meant to know that it was Metatron and not God? But what it does is it reveals to you the importance of this tradition, is that the one seated on the throne is God. Those who are in front of the throne are the angels, and the tradition is really, really significant about that. I'm just going to tell you, a, a piece of trivia has popped into my head that you might be interested in, so let me just go off piece um, temporarily. Sitting is therefore really important in the biblical tradition. If you hear of people sitting, um, it is always a really significant thing. So when it says Jesus has ascended into heaven and is sitting at the right hand of the Father, That's a really significant theological statement, which we often miss because we go, yeah, yeah, of course he's sitting next to God. Where else would he be? Um, The answer is that he's sitting on the throne with God, because the only um, being who is able to sit down in heaven is God. And the only thing to sit on in heaven is the throne. So if Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God, he's sitting on the throne. And then you realise that actually it's not just um, a kind of a, an image description for you to imagine what Jesus is doing. It's a really profound theological statement. And that kind of gets you into some of this um, tradition. So, angels are very important, but they are not God. The other thing is that they are not human beings. And one of the really fascinating things about this tradition is that if you were to do a ranking of God's perspective on the world about who is important, it goes God, human beings, angels. And that is really, really clear from the biblical texts. Um, One particular reference is 1 Peter 1 verse 12, in which it talks about the nature of salvation and how salvation can now be understood. And it ends with a phrase that a lot of people find very odd. Um, It says into which things angels yearn to look. But what it's really saying is that actually the mysteries of God, the things that make the universe work, the salvation that breaks out all around us, um, is something that is revealed to human beings in Christ Jesus. And angels wish they could have a little look at it, but they can't, because their job is just to worship and not to understand the rest. And it's quite interesting to recognize that, therefore, angels become below human beings in the rankings. So, we've talked about the biblical tradition. We've had to think about what they might look like in the biblical tradition. We've had to think about the importance of angels as messengers. Um, what can we tell, therefore, about angels? Um, I'll begin by talking about what we can tell about angels from what we know in the Bible And then I'll have a little reflection um, on our own experiences of angels. I think for me the reason why the angel tradition is really important and why we need to pay very close attention to it is actually because it means we treat each other much better. Because if you are a potential angel who might be coming to me with a message from God then I treat you with a much greater deal of respect than I would if I just think you're somebody I've never met, has got something to say, but I may, not, may or may not pay attention. The idea that messengers from God come either in clearly angelic form or clearly in human form, means that actually we need to treat each other with the greatest of respect, because actually we might have a room full of angels here. Um, and the message that God can deliver to us comes through this room full of angels. That, I think, is really important. The next thing, I think, is that um, one of the annoying things about the biblical tradition, which um, I will have, um, you will have noticed now, is that people are not sure whether an angel is an angel or not. And that tradition gets you into that whole theme about being surprised by God. Um, The one thing that we know about God, um, and I can give you so many examples from the Bible, is that God is always unexpected. You are looking here for God, whereas actually God's over here doing something completely different. That element of being surprised by God is a really, really significant thing. And then finally, let's talk about experiences of angels. Um, The reason why I believe in angels is I've just given you a whole talk about why they're important in the biblical tradition. So the door is open for me to believe in them. But the reason I really believe in angels is because I have spoken to so many people who give me descriptions of angels. And I go, "Yeah, no, that was clearly an angel. Once we've done all of our definition that we've just done. Um, So let me tell you a few stories about angels um, to end with. Um, There's somebody I know who was very, very seriously ill in hospital. And um, she was in intensive care. (coughs) And They thought she was going to die. And um, somebody came to her um, who was dressed like a nurse. um, And she sat with her all night and held her hand and said, don't be afraid, God is with you. All night, don't be afraid, God is with you. And in the morning, the crisis turned and um, she wasn't so ill. And she asked um, the sister in charge during the day um, if she could talk to the nurse to say thank you, because it made her feel so much better. And the sister in charge said there wasn't anybody there. And she absolutely believes that that was an angel who, was, who came with a message from God to help her. Who knows whether it was, in fact, a person or, in fact, an angel. Um, we simply can't tell. Another story um, somebody else told me was that they were going through a very, very dark time um, and thought that they um, would end their life. So they were standing on a bridge looking down um, into the river and um, contemplating whether they would end their life. And um, somebody came past and said, you're looking really miserable, would you like a chip? Um, and having had a chip, um, he then decided he wasn't going to um, commit suicide after all. Um I love the idea of an angel bringing chips um, that surely is a great and is a, a missing part of the biblical tradition but again human being angelic messenger who knows who cares the point was the message was communicated and then I'll um, tell you my um, old and I'm going to, I will get emotional so please excuse me um between my first and my second um daughters I had a miscarriage and it wasn't clear for a while whether I was going to have a miscarriage or not um, and I woke up in the middle of the night, um, knowing that the miscarriage had happened. And I just felt a feather touch my cheek. Oh, I can never tell this story without getting emotional. A feather t- touched my cheek, and I felt the overwhelming sense of peace um, of knowing that I was held and loved. Um, and which is ironic, because I, as I've just been telling you, I'm not sure angels have wings or not. Um, but I was quite convinced that a feather had touched my cheek. Um, and therefore I knew that I was known and loved by God. I could now go on and tell you 25 other stories of um, angels that people have told me about, um, but I would just like to leave you there um, with um, the things that I know. Angels are important in the Bible. We cannot tell whether they are human beings or God or some kind of um, unearthly um Being sometimes they are, sometimes they're not. Sometimes it's clear that they're angels. Sometimes it's not clear that the angel that they are angels. But one thing I do know is that those experiences have never stopped, and people still talk today about their own experiences of angels. And the unifying factor is that they receive a message of some kind or another, whether it's emotional or factual, but mostly emotional. Um, which communicates that they are loved in the world. And as far as I'm concerned, that'll do. And I'll believe in angels based on that.